everybody. Mike, Bonnie, Tim, and Faith are here coming at you live. Uh, Tim is in Northern California. Bonnie, Austin, Texas. Faith, where are you coming at us from? Atlanta, Georgia. That's what I'm talking about. Oh my goodness. And yours truly coming from Columbus, Ohio. We really do represent the 50 states and that, that geographical territory, right? Can you think of anything we're missing? No. Michigan, not missing at all. No need for them. And Maine, what what's going on in Maine right now? Does anyone know? Nope. That's exactly right. So I'm okay with 49 states. That's fine. <laughs> Um, Bonnie and Tim, updates on what's happening these days. Are you still quarantining? Are you still, you know, as summer has hit, what's the what's the status with like social visits? We opened in Texas, like for one of the first to open, open real fast and furious. That's the Texas way. Yep. And then whoops, everything has tripled, and so now the they're wanting to shut it all back down again. They're like, don't go anywhere, don't leave your house, don't do anything. Dang. So we're just That's California up. too. Oh, there you go. We did a good job. Everything was kind of slowing down, and then they opened up, and everything. Yeah. So now we are. Uh, I mean, we weren't doing anything anyway, so it didn't change that much for us. But. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you mean the virus just didn't go away? It didn't apparently. It didn't. No. But I, I, mean, I people was. Were pretty, I was assured us, the virus the would disappear. It didn't. Yeah. Nope. It's here. Nice. It's climbing. It's cruising. Oh, my goodness. Faith, what about you? What what have you been doing in the midst of all this pandemic stuff? So I spent a lot of time at home, most of the whole time working at home. And then things kind of started. I didn't go right out when things started to open up in Georgia, but our offices just opened back up where we office out of. So we've been in the office a little bit, but I still haven't done a whole lot. I really will only go around people I know, people yeah. who I'm like can ask and look at and say, "Listen, have you been sick yeah. or not?" You know what I'm saying? Because I don't want to be around you. I don't want to be <laughs> yeah. around you if you have been. Be honest. <laughs> and wearing my mask, which is you know controversial, but I've been wearing it. Is it's it shame. controversial in Atlanta? People don't wear them. Yeah. Like it's it's you you have like a few people that do and then for the most part people don't the only yeah. like the only time i feel comfortable is if i'm in like a enclosed space with people that i'm aware of have been actually taking similar precautions as mm -hmm. i have mm -hmm. um without wearing it but for the most part you can go to the grocery store and people don't wear them at all and that baffles me mm -hmm. yeah that's how it is here too and they have the signs out front now since since they got relocked down to do like you're required there's a big sign you're required to wear a mask and to you know adhere to the six feet thing and then you go in and there's a bunch of people without masks on it's like well <laughs> just kind of want to start yeah. pointing well i didn't I, you know i don't think you guys realize that bill gates is taking over the world in the midst of this and wearing a mask is a capitulation to the one world system promised in Revelation. You've been um, so. uh, on Twitter. Conspiracy <laughs> <laughs> theory hashtag. Too much. Oh, oh, I mean, it's, it's so... safe to say that that has been said, and that's all yeah, I'm going to no, say. Totally, I know. You know totally. what? We've all heard it. I've, I was like, huh. And then like <laughs> a like, few hours later, so I was like, what are you reading? I'm like, blah, blah, blah. he's like, okay. <laughs> It's it's if yep. it's that quick off the top, 
it's too you're too far deep <laughs> oh. <laughs> well, to scale it back uh, well bonnie why don't you introduce faith to everybody and then let's get started we're so looking forward to having you on faith and having a great conversation take it away bonnie yes awesome um this is my friend faith and she's joining us faith brooks and i met faith about oh gosh that was a while ago maybe six or seven years ago i think it was um because uh I was part of the Legacy Collective, which is um, a nonprofit organization with Brandon and Jen Hatmaker, and Faith uh, worked for them. And so we met up at an event one time and became friends. And um, I wanted to bring her on today because she now works for Be The Bridge. So mm. Faith, um, we're dying to hear all about Be The Bridge, uh, but first kind of just tell us about you. What do you do for Be The Bridge and how you kind of got into the work? Yeah, so I work for Be The Bridge as Director of Programs. And I got into the work of, well, I've always been very like justice centered and focused since I was a kid. That's just yeah. been something that's a part of just who I am. And um, if you know anything about the Enneagram, I'm an eight on the Enneagram, which justice Boom. is like really a core. Yeah. Like it's really a big part of people who, you know, identify as an eight. So anyways, mm -hmm. um, I have always had that lean towards justice, but it really was in like, I would say college that I started to really talk more about it and be able to like express my feelings and my experiences of mm -hmm. being a black woman in America and mm -hmm. what that looked like, because I went to a very small conservative private school mm -hmm. and I, I dealt with a lot of microaggressions, a lot of mm. um, just different racism that you would experience. And it was in this like insular faith-based environment. So that kind of started the beginning of some real unravelings for me and being able to talk about it. And then in 2015, I moved to, or 14, I moved to Austin and I got introduced to um, Latasha Morrison a few months later. And she was not, Be The Bridge hadn't really started yet as an organization, but um, the conversation and the guide that she wrote had just been released at a big conference and I met her and I was like, look, I'm in Austin and I maybe only see a black person where I was living at the time, maybe like once a week. And that was yeah. really weird for me coming from wow. Houston. Mm -hmm. wow. And so, um, she just kind of was like, I know how you feel. Don't worry. And just befriended me and we became friends. And then she threw me into leading a be the bridge group, um, and I was the youngest person. So it was like myself and Jen Hatmaker and Laura and Monica and a bunch, just a bunch of people that we knew. And, um, we, I was the leader. I was probably like 24 mm. or something at the time. And so I was leading all these women and talking about how we can have conversations about racial, um, healing and reconciliation. And so that's how I got started. And, um, stayed close with Tasha and just kind of volunteered and helped her build be the bridge until I got hired last August full time. So, Oh, that's awesome. Congratulations. It's a perfect role for you. Um, you're so personable, but you're also so passionate. So it's like, it's a great combo for you. But for those that don't know, I should have done this from the get go. Can you explain what be the bridge is and why it might be um, unique as to some other sort of anti-racism education organizations? Yeah, so Be The Bridge, um, really our mission is to empower people and culture towards racial healing, equity, and reconciliation. And so we do that work um, in church spaces, and we have guides to help guide people through that. But we also do it in spaces outside of church. And so mm -hmm. I think our organization is unique in that way, in that we have um, 
a way of talking about race and racism that disarms people, gets people in the room to have a conversation. Yeah. And then we love to send them to our partner friends and organizations that are going to um, really up the ante a little bit and get them ready for some um, heavy hitting conversations that might be harder to hear at first. Mm. But um, we really kind of get people started at their 101, um, 201 level of learning when it comes to race and what does it look like to be anti-racist? What does it look for your church to be that way or your organization or your school? So um, that's a little bit about who we are and what we do and we're all over. And so all over the world and people download our guides from our shop, start be the bridge groups, have conversations with their friends and their community and really just walk through what does it look like for us to what is really, what does reconciliation look like, right? It's not Mm -hmm. just holding hands and singing Kumbaya. It requires actual action and actual Mm -hmm. repentance. And I think that um, people forget the repentance piece um, and actually turning away um, from your old behaviors and walking in a new way of behaving. And so um, we really um, get to have a lot of fun fostering conversations like that Mm -hmm. with people. And um, that's just a little bit about what we do, but we do a whole lot, a whole lot more. Yeah. Oh, that's really cool. Um, Because I feel like when when I first heard about Be the Bridge, it was about seven or so years ago. I think is when Latasha Probably first like, started. Yeah, six, five, like six. Some, yeah, something around there. And um, I was really intrigued by it because of how, just exactly what you said. How disarming um, you guys make the conversation. Um, and one of the I I think I had like this small stint where I, I used to have this podcast and I, it was like four episodes and I interviewed Latasha on it and it was the first time I had ever heard the phrase structural privilege. Mm-hmm. Um, I had never ever heard it, and so can you explain that a little bit and for our listeners that really are really are one hundred and one and don't understand um, maybe uh, structural privilege, white privilege, like the difference there. Um, and also, um, when we talk about systemic racism, I think that sometimes in the conversation, people are really caught up on just individual, just saying, well, I'm mm-hmm. not a racist, so therefore it's fine. But um, how uh, we need to take a step bigger or a step more than that, but also that it's it's just so much baked in. Yeah. So I think there's a lot of layers when you start talking about privilege with people that kind of like um, throws people off a little bit when you say privilege, Mm, because sometimes they're like, well, I like my family didn't have a lot of money or I never had a bunch of, you know, my family's not rich or I worked really hard for everything that I have. I'm not privileged because in the, the idea behind it is that you work for what you get and you get it on your own accord. And so therefore nobody helped you, which means you're not privileged. But the big but is, is that there is a such thing as white privilege because we have a system, systemic racism and systemic racism means that you have um, your education system, your healthcare system, um, really our political system, um, all kinds of things that you can think of, any kind of structure that we have right now in America. These structures have benefited white people over black people and other people of color. Mm. And the reasoning for that is that because after <laughs> after enslavement and then moving into reconstruction, um, we really had to start addressing some of the issues, but people were just not trying to let black people have equal rights. Mm. And so um, 
they kind of basically like once, you know, a lot of black people had they had won offices and they were, you know, incident and they were doing great. But then white people were like, we want those seats back and we mm. want to put more like provisions in place to prevent you from making progress. And so that's what happens. Like the small progress gained after reconstruction was lost. And so then you we move into even further you know, distancing and issues with Jim Crow laws and how, you know, there you were dealing with segregation. And a lot of people hear about Jim Crow, so you might be a little bit more familiar with that. Um, but the point is, is that there's laws that were put in place so that way black people would not be able to, whether it's get jobs, have housing loans, mm. um, live in certain areas, redlining, which that's where that comes from. And so that meant that families, generations of families didn't gain wealth you didn't get wealth from owning property or your property was stolen because your family was racially terrorized and so there's a level of white privilege because there was a system that was set up to benefit white people yeah. over black people and so mm -hmm. that's why people say white privilege because it's just saying that hey we have a system that mm -hmm. was set up to benefit you over other people now you might not have known it but right. that's just what that's just what exists. Right. That's just what it is. And I think that's what's so scary about the whole thing is how much we have to look inside and say, how much have I been benefiting from a system that I literally didn't know? Yeah. Can I jump you in know, for a second? Buddy? Yes, please do. Well, no, just as uh, just as a illustration of that, we moved to a suburb of Columbus that we found out as recently as the 50s had provisions in their housing contracts to not. Uh, like there, there was a central housing authority that would buy up if you wanted to sell your home here so that so mm -hmm. that people of color and Jewish people could not buy homes in our city. Uh, mm -hmm. I mean, that was in the real estate contracts as recently as 50 mm -hmm. years ago, which I would never have known that. But that to, that is mm -hmm. utterly systemic. Yeah. Right. That's not yeah. I, I did not know that when we bought here, but that, that is still benefited me. Uh, just in virtue of my my skin color and punished mm -hmm. others. Yes. So, I mean, I, I was, you know, all of those conversations were far away mm -hmm. for me until right. here's this really tangible example of exactly what you're talking about. Mm. Yes, that's mm. like really a perfect example. I think that people don't realize that they were actually neighborhoods where it's like these people cannot live here. Or if you see black families moving in, then it's like we're going to leave, which is something mm -hmm. um, that people kind of coined the term like white flight. Right. So they're right. going to move on to like a different neighborhood or leave out of that neighborhood because now there's too many black people. And they were, they were told that if you have too many black people move into your neighborhood, that's going to make your property value go right. down. Right. And so that's what right. that's what led to like white flight. Exactly what you're saying. Yeah. yeah. I was wow. just shocked. That's, yeah. So I think, like you said, people don't know. And. Um, along with what you're talking about earlier, we're talking about experiencing microaggressions. Um, mm -hmm. There's so many of these things that are so buried. Do you know what I mean? That like we have come, we have part of the system, we don't know it. We've also come accustomed to seeing. So when mm -hmm. you talk about, and especially like I'm at fault, especially as white people, or I say something. So when you were discussing microaggressions, what are some of the ways um, sort of that we are part of the problem and might not necessarily mm -hmm. know it? whether it be our language or mm -hmm. I don't even know the neighborhoods we live in or, you know, what, what is it that we can do on these little levels that we do all the time that are obvious, um, that are, they're obvious to you and they're obvious to the black community, but they're not so obvious uh, to us, but we want to know and learn. 
I think like some common microaggressions are, um, I used to get these a lot. Like you talk like a white person, um, Mm -hmm. which for me, it was like, Hey, look, like my mom was like very, very a stickler. She's a stickler about our language. And so for her, if we were not allowed to talk slang, so she taught us to enunciate our words. That was just how I was raised. I couldn't like, I can't change that. And that's the way that I talk, Mm -hmm. but it really started to bother me because Mm -hmm. people would say it as if the fact that I'm a black woman and I talk this way equates to me trying to be white, meaning that can I not be intelligent and brilliant and talk the way that I talk and just be a great black woman? Like, why Mm -hmm. does that have to Mm -hmm. be equated with whiteness? Right. And so I think there's like a social conditioning that happens that people might not even realize as kids that equates white with being better because, Mm. Hey, you talk, why would you compare me the way that I talk to a white person as if that's good or that's better? Or like, it's not good to talk like a black person, whatever that's supposed to mean. And so, um, that's definitely a microaggression I got all the time or saying things to people, um, very similar to that, but like, you're like an Oreo black on the outside, white on the inside. I got, that got said to me a lot. Um, growing up too. Um, Mm. other things like people wanting to understand uh, your hair or the Mm. fact that you like right now have braids in my hair. Um, I've been told when people have seen my hair in different hairstyles, your hair looks like a science experiment and uh, it's things like that where it's like, I'm curious to know about you or your hair or what you look like, but I don't necessarily know how or what to say sometimes and so people just end up saying things that's just not helpful or um, finding ways that you're kind of like expressing something to a black person but it's almost like a negative jab and I think unless you're able to really kind of look a little bit deeper or just think a little bit like think a little bit more before saying something um, it can kind of be um it can be beneficial in the long run because what happens and what has happened is most black people have taken microaggressions, have, um, have like, have experienced these things and we talk to each other about them amongst Mm -hmm. ourselves, but we don't always point it out to the person directly because we would be doing it all the freaking time. We would be doing it all the time saying, Mm -hmm. Hey, you know, you just, you just did a microaggression. Like, and I would appreciate it if you don't, but, at the same time, when you do start to speak up for yourself, sometimes in work mm-hmm. environments or just depending where you're at, people do get offended. And then you have to like, you know, ask yourself, do I want to deal with HR? Do I want to have to deal with my job? Is somebody going to, yeah. you know, use me correcting them against me or say that I was being problematic or trying to start mm-hmm. trouble? So there's like so many layers of thought you have to go into. I know for me, when I was in an office environment and I was like one of the only black people, I would time when I changed my hair because Mm. I wanted I didn't want to like have to deal with people asking me questions in the middle of the week so I would change it over the weekend and then Mm. when I come Monday something is different but if I came during the middle of the week you have to deal with comments and questions and you know oh your hair was just like this yesterday why is it like this today or how did you do that and and sometimes I just didn't feel like doing that I just wanted to be able to show up as me And so I also encourage people to watch videos about microaggressions because that really helps, especially asking people where they're from. Like Mm. that's especially Asian Americans or people of different ethnicities saying, Hey, where are you from? And they say, you know, Ohio. And they say, no, no, no. Where are you really from? 
And then, you know, so like things like that. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So things like that. I encourage people to look up more about microaggressions because you'll, you'll learn that unconsciously you probably do it. And Mm -hmm. um, once you see several examples, it'll help you to like ask yourself a question before you say something. Yeah, no, that's so good. And can you talk about your experience, um, in maybe it's, um, in a sense of microaggression, but it might also just be in a sense of, um, sort of being like a lack of representation, um, when it comes to the church and on the church stage. And, um, I think I've been trying to make sure to, as hard as it is, and I just openly admit it's super tough to continue to stay friends with people on Facebook or have them in my feed that I disagree with. But if I don't, I'm sort of in this like carefully curated bubble that they think all the same things I think. <laughs> so it's mm-hmm. fine. Um, but when I look outside that, I learn a lot. Um, and I think something I do hear oftentimes from people who are still um, kind of deep in the evangelical church is that uh, this doesn't happen in church and that um, like a black person could walk into a major evangelical church and feel represented and feel fine. And I, I can't imagine that that is true. Um, and I don't want to speak for anybody. So I wanted to know uh, what your opinion is on that or what your experience has been. Um, I don't think that in the broad evangelical church as we know it, um, there's a ton of representation. I will say that there's a lot of having to assimilate Mm-hmm. in order to be um, yeah. accepted of sorts, if you were to mm-hmm. you know say it that way. Um, it's very different than like the black church, right? Where, you know, there's just more of a, um, like your, your structure and the community and like there's traditions with the black church. Right. But there's some people who, uh, some black people, and I've gone to a lot of different kind of churches, um, but there's some black people who want to go to a multicultural or multi-ethnic church, which mm-hmm. I've grown up in. However, the one thing that I've noticed is that there isn't a lot of representation a lot of times in the sense that you might see a a black person on stage singing or a black person involved like with the instruments and musical aspects of the service. But when it comes to like the people actually making decisions for the church, like your executive staff, your leadership, usually it's mostly all white. Um, and there isn't really a black person in a position where they're actually mm. making like important key decisions. Right. And musically, if you wanted a little bit more flavor and you didn't want to just be subjected to like, you know, Bethel or Hillsong or the <laughs> elevation, right. you know, there's not as much like diversity in music. And so like even the churches that I've helped with over the years and helped to plant, one of the things that I said was, Hey, listen, a part of this and reaching other people. We're in a um, a lower income neighborhood. It's mostly black people and other people of color. You have to have music that connects with the community. Right. But that was just even like such a hard thing to push, like to get just the music to be inclusive. Right, and right, so right. what I've seen even in churches as a black person, when you're trying to say like, these are some ways to connect, these are some ways to be more inclusive, even that's met with resistance. So mm-hmm. I would say that I didn't grow up seeing a whole lot of black people in prominent evangelical spaces mm-hmm. that were actually in positions of true leadership mm-hmm. and actually um, um, 
leading in that way, specifically even women. So yeah. like mm-hmm. you would see some black men and you would know the few that that were um, there and that were called upon. But when it comes to black women, I especially didn't see it. Yeah. And so um, I always wanted to see myself in places and I didn't always. And, yeah. and the minute that I did, I was excited. But it's not it's not very common. Yeah. And I think that people view the fact that, hey, we do have some you know, black people on our staff or black people who sing for us or, or around the stage somewhere as a fact that, yes, see, we have that. We, we have those elements, but the truth is, is who's making the decisions? Mm-hmm. Are black people in positions to make actual decisions that are going to affect the body? Right. And I believers be and then, yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Mm, yeah. No. And, and I think it doesn't help too, that most like pictures we have of God is like this white Jesus which is like, it's, Mm -hmm. um, it's super hard because it's, we, I mean, it's, it is literally talking about like making, making God in our image, right. Uh, the, right. In terms of people in power and then representing God to sort of also look the same. Um, so we have like this influx of people right now that are having part of this conversation. Um, and I knew about be the bridge before it was a cool thing that people talked about. Um, and I saw a post that you s- said today that really hit me. Um, I think it was today. Maybe it was yesterday. All the days are kind of the same day. But it was um, <laughs> like, yes, we're still talking about racism. And so like over the past few weeks, there's been this big influx of conversation when we're talking about Breonna Taylor and we're talking about George Floyd and Ahmaud Arbery. And then I'm sure a ton of people following um, black voices, people reading books. And then it's sort of um, all of a sudden my feed is back to normal. Like people aren't elevating voices anymore, except for new people I've followed. Um, And so um, I think this is a two part question. What is it that you want to say in that space? Um, We had Britt Barron, do you know who Britt Barron is? Mm-hmm. We had her on the podcast a few weeks ago and I said the same thing to her, which was like, I fear that it will be something where people are like, yes, let's talk about racism, let's help. And then it just slowly sort of um, dissipates. And so what is it, um, what can people do? What is a first step beyond reading? Education is huge. Um, but I also saw in like a, the be the bridge group on Facebook that I'm in of someone saying like, Oh, I'm worried because people are, um, forming groups and doing these things without doing internal work first. Mm-hmm. Um, it's my experience that when we do the internal work, it becomes personal. So then we can continue the outside work. Um, but what are your, what do you say? What are your guidelines there? What's your encouragement there? Um, what would you tell a group of people that want to do, um, want to do more than just learning, but sort of put into practice. So it's not something that dissipates. Yeah. So what I would say to people who want to learn more is first, Um, I'm glad that people are choosing to hang in there and continue the conversation. It's, um, it's easy to cop out and especially when it doesn't necessarily affect you or if most of your world, um, you don't really intersect with other people of color. So it's easier to kind of like, you know, go back to normal. Right. Um, but for those who are choosing to ask themselves what they can do next, I think one of the the main things like you were saying was internal work is so important. So, Yes, you know, of course, you can read and educate yourself, which is great. But right now we're in, um, you know, an election season and people have a variety of political beliefs, which is totally fine. Um, But you can be a part of, 
you know, helping people as they vote. Like there's a lot of people who are like um, setting up snack stations and water stations Mm -hmm. or volunteering at their local polling centers and really wanting to be a part of this or, you know, finding themselves starting conversations with family or friends or doing book clubs so that they that way they can foster conversation Mm -hmm. amongst other friends of theirs who might not necessarily be super open, but they have like a small door into starting um, these conversations with people. I think relationship is so important. Mm -hmm. And um, also talking to your children about, hey, this is like really what you're learning, right? And and Mm -hmm. how to start approaching these conversations with them. And so I think whenever we're able to start like these small, like actionable steps of like changing your life Mm -hmm. and putting yourself in a position to where like, have you ever put yourself in a position where you are like one of the only white people amongst all black people Mm. or other people of color? Have you ever changed your scenery? Have you ever seen what Mm -hmm. that's like or felt like? Have you ever attended a church that was different from yours? Um, Mm. Things like that. I mean, those are experiences that I've even put myself in just so I have a different perspective. Mm. And it really is a it's something that positively affects you. You have more compassion for people. You have more of an understanding, um, at least on the baseline level mm-hmm. of where other people are coming from when you put yourself in the position, um, to be a learner mm-hmm. and also, um, to just listen. I think mm-hmm. the one thing I would say and caution people is this is a time to listen and to learn. It's not a time to start a movement and um, to try to lead in this. There's so many people leading, so many black voices and people who've been doing this work that are available for people to follow and to learn from. And the thing that you can do the most that impacts people, and I say this all the time, it's change yourself, change your life that Mm -hmm. impacts the next generation and the generation after that and your family Mm -hmm. when you choose to make a difference and to change your perspective your kids will think differently and so will their kids and Mm -hmm. that is huge and we can never underestimate the importance of doing that Mm. yeah just the idea of repentance that you said earlier i think that for me that really resonates because i think a lot of people still think of repentance as just confession Mm -hmm. but this idea of kind of reposturing if you know i live in a very white area and I've grown up in a very white church. This idea of reposturing yourself turns you into a room or, or at least in a direction in which you are maybe unfamiliar. So the idea of repentance as kind of like a big first step so that you mm-hmm. are in a position where it, it like the, the most wise thing you can do is to listen and learn because you are facing an unfamiliar track yeah. forward. So I think that I, I don't think I've heard repentance a lot in this conversation, not this conversation, but in the global conversation. And mm-hmm. I think that's a really unique and important way to think about first step kind of mm-hmm. stuff, especially in like in a, in a changing, you know, yeah. like you're saying, ramifications, ripples that yeah. go out and cause like actual change amongst at least the communities that we're in. I think that's a really I like that. Like that word that that kind of stuck. Mm. Cool. Yeah. And I like what you said, too, about like, hey, this isn't the time to start an organization. There are already people leading us. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that is like, Faith, that's so well put. We we really, we don't believe that little steps matter. And we're like, now's the time I'm going to start a nonprofit. And you're like, no, there's already people doing it. <laughs> yeah. You need to put yeah. yourself in a position um, to be led. Yeah. I think them. sometimes white people just get really excited. And are like, you know what? <laughs> 
we're going to fix this today. <laughs> yes. And it's like, we're yes. like, yeah, this has been 400 years. We've been trying to fix this. Yeah. I'm glad that you're excited, but you could take your excitement and your dollars <laughs> and help raise money for the organizations and the people doing this work that have been doing this work that haven't gotten the visibility and leverage your influence. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that yeah. Um, yeah. I think that's something that white people can do more of is like, look at your community and your circle. Can you leverage your influence to open up the door for a, um, you know, a person of color or a black person who might not have gotten in otherwise? That's great. Mm-hmm. You got a speaking engagement. They asked you a question about race. Leverage your influence. Let a black person speak about it and talk yeah. about their perspective. Um, I think those are more things that people should be um actively doing because there's voices who have been speaking and leading in it and sometimes just they have not had the opportunity to get invited to those spaces and Mm. so um you know use your influence and help other people um who have a message worth being heard get the opportunity Mm. yeah no that's so good i love that you said that um i love that you said sometimes white people get excited it's it's so true true. it's so true yeah we're Um, in such a hashtag culture too like i'll talk with mm -hmm. my students and they'll talk about you know and they're all 18 19 20 and they'll talk about going to protests and how much of it is just a hashtag culture right just being Mm -hmm. at something where you can take a selfie throw it on social media throw the hashtag on there and then it's like i participated Right. But now we're like in an election year. So what yesterday was Kentucky, right? And Jefferson Mm -hmm. County shuts all their polling stations down for to one station for is it six hundred thousand people? Yeah. Off top of my head, but that kind of stuff, like Stacey Abrams being so directly involved with trying to just make it possible for folks to vote in uh, all the different states and kind of just trying to open up more space for people to be able to even have a voice or not have a voice but to use their voice yeah Yeah. uh you know yeah sorry i'm just i'm rolling through things as you guys are talking and thinking (laughs) about yeah there are you know ways that we can can be supportive i guess is the yeah yeah i think that's really good um so when someone um like give us a teaser kind of if somebody uh, goes to be the bridge and and uh, downloads the guide. What is sort of the first, what's the door in? That's the first step. So if somebody downloads the guide, it'll kind of give them um, like some steps on like how to facilitate your group and how to have the conversation. And then really the guide is, you know, it, it's just that it's a guide to help mm-hmm. lead you through a conversation with your friends mm-hmm. um, and to help walk you through um literally having heart-to-heart conversations you being open and vulnerable sharing your experiences with others it's really a guide that's to be walked through with other um people of color and white people mm-hmm. you're gonna have it you can have a discussion with all white people but it's really not going to be the really the fullness of what it's supposed to be because right. there has to be an exchange of stories and experiences and so typically like when i've led groups I want our groups to actually build relationships and and friendships. So we would meet once a month. Some people meet weekly, it's nine sessions. And, but because we met once a month meant that it was almost a year of us walking together through talking Mm. about race and living life together and doing other things besides just meeting in our group. Um, I liked for us to go out to eat together or 
for us to get to just know each other in a, um, a deeper way. So that way we understood each other's lives. Mm. And um, I really encourage personal conversation even before we jump into the actual guide itself and talking about um, maybe we were talking about lament or maybe we were talking about um, some other aspects from the guide. But I loved to just say, hey, what's going on in your personal life? Like, mm. how are you doing? And that helped all of us to understand one another a little bit better. And yeah. it humanizes people, right? I mean, if you mm. don't know a person of a different ethnicity or background, you, all of us, like you get societal, you know, biases of and stereotypes of how you think a person is. And it's not until you're able to really understand and get to know somebody that is different from you that they become more of a human to you like they're humanized they're not just Mm -hmm. a character on tv they're not just you know the music you listen to is real people and so through that we start having conversations where then I can ask a question in the group um one of our questions is like what's an incident of racism you've experienced people open up they start to share and um you know, the people of color in our group, we had some black people that were sharing their experiences. And now it's real to you because you're right. hearing a firsthand account of what somebody has walked through and processed through. And then for the white people, you know, one of the questions is what are some racist ideologies you've grown up with that you yeah. might not have recognized that you realize now? And so then it's for the white people to also come and give an exchange. And so that's what the groups are. It's like, we're, we're gonna exchange back and forth our experiences And there's no reason to let shame, you know, as a white person, hold you back from saying, hey, you know, what? I think my dad was a racist or had racist tendencies. And that breaks my heart. But that's what I learned. And um, a lot of people would maybe be ashamed to say that. But it's like if I'm going to be vulnerable enough to tell you about the racist incidents I've experienced, I'm going to hold enough space to listen to what you're saying. So then we can move forward in a conversation and talk about Mm -hmm. why this is wrong and the ways that we can really walk forward together. But yeah. We have to deal with this with um, understanding what is going on and deal with the confession piece and then move into that, you know, repentance portion. And mm. so the groups kind of walk you through, you know, nine steps that's going to get you there. Mm. Mm. That's cool. That sounds an awful lot. The good news of <laughs> um, yeah. just confession and um, repentance. And, and like you said, doing that inner work. What do you tell people when they say I'm in, I want to start a group? Uh oh, I only know white people. I tell people that you need to, um, you can do like the BTB 101 guide and as a group with people and, um, or start a book club with Latasha Morrison's book. The Mm. other thing I also say is you need to wait until you've built relationships with other people of color or no other people of color willing to join. Um, I don't recommend just trying to find random you know, people of color around the city or, you know, right. stopping people at the grocery store and being like, I am ashamed. I've been racist. Can you please talk to me? Um, don't right. do that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but definitely build relationships with people and that takes time. And so, yeah. and I think that sometimes, you know, in the eagerness that I've seen from white people, sometimes there's like an impatience, right? Like I, I'm so eager, true. I realize it now and I, I want to do something about it. I want to have these conversations. Show me where the black people are so I can just say I'm mm. sorry and try to be friends. Um, but it doesn't work like that. Like mm. there are people who have been trying to communicate, who have been trying to share their stories, who have dealt with so much discrimination and you have to earn someone's trust and that takes time. Mm-hmm. So you yeah. can't force conversations on people. Um, people who want to have conversations will. And yeah. um 
and some people aren't ready and that's okay because there's a lot going on and, and people processing trauma, especially trauma in church mm-hmm. and, um, and people who maybe they've grown up in church with or been in church with for years and years. And um, now people are starting to care and they've been asking people to care for a while. So some people mm-hmm. uh, are burnt out and that's honest too. So, mm-hmm. you know, if people are ready to talk, they'll talk. That's, mm-hmm. And I think that... Um, you know, you have to just be patient enough to wait. So one lady waited like a year or a year and a half until she had actually fostered real relationships in her personal life with other people of color. Then she started, started a group, which Mm. is huge. And I think that people have to have that level of patience. She did her own work. She she had other conversations with other white people. She was, you know, putting herself in a position to learn. But when it came to really starting her group and and we suggest that you um, have a co-leader that's a person of color and don't just lead with two white people. Um, And so she waited until she she could get that. It took her a while, but she did Mm. it. And I um, highly recommend that other people do the same. Well, that's that's an amazing, I think that's an amazing point because I, along with the sort of excitement and impatient sort of thing. I, I think church culture um, is uh, some of it, some of it is designed to help white people deal with their guilt. Um, you know what I mean? And not truly reconcile, but it's like I go to a missions trip, so it's okay that I'm wealthy. Um, I have some black friends, so it's okay that I'm white and privileged, right? I don't know, but, but and, and I see obviously this in me and I see it kind of in our, in our churches. And so when I hear a story like the one you just told of someone who deeply wanted this experience not to be that, this wasn't about her uh, or him and, and their guilt. This was a really about walking and understanding. That's inspiring to me because I think it's so easy, uh, easy, at least for me to get caught up in these virtuals, virtue signaling moments that help me feel better about me, but then mm-hmm. aren't, aren't really doing the lasting work. And I think that's, that's a really compelling picture for me. Yeah. So thank you. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, I want to say I have so much respect for you, Faith, and I've, um, been friends with you but followed your work for a while and like when you said um some people are tired and some people have experienced trauma um if i can ask you the personal question of you have been um talking about racism for as long as i've known you and you've experienced it your whole life and you've been saying things for a long time what does it feel like that on some level the world's woken up a little bit um i'm trying to I don't even want to guess what it would feel like, but I'm sure it's a mixture of things. Um, mm-hmm. Cause like when you said like some people are wanting to lead still and some people are traumatized and some people, I mean, there has to be this feeling of gosh, like, like you said, tired, like I've been saying this for a long time, you know what I mean? Feeling unheard, mm-hmm. but um, I don't know. What, what has it been like? It's a good question. It has been, encouraging in some ways to see that more people are deciding to care mm-hmm. um it's kind of like okay wow like people are you know making the like conscientious um decision to now want to have this conversation which is great um and then in other ways it's felt it's felt exhausting mm-hmm. because then you're also dealing with that that level of like eagerness of like i'm gonna get started i'm ready i've started like 
15 Facebook groups and we're having come and it's just like, wait, 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 wait. Like, um, (laughs) so it feels, um, you're encouraged because you know, people are energized and they, um, they're more ready than before, which is great. And I think that's the part that makes me excited that more people are ready to listen. Mm -hmm. But then at the same time, it's like, you also want to encourage people to, truly listen to the voices that have been doing this work. And I think um, Mm -hmm. as a black woman, the one thing I've been kind of saying the most lately is, you know, in thinking about black women and black women leading in this work about how so many black women have been forgotten and, Mm -hmm. you know, black women were the architects for the civil rights movement. A lot of people don't know the black women, um, you know, who were a part of that or who were leading in that and, and so many other aspects of the movement. So it makes me think, you know, we have been talking about this and we have been saying this and when will also black women be um, given their due credit for their Mm. leadership in this work and are people willing to follow the leadership of black women? And so um, I think that um, that's something that I have been pondering on, but also just talking about more lately because I see that it's an issue. We're still dealing with patriarchy. We're still dealing with mm-hmm. men who are like, okay, this is great. Maybe this is a problem. Let's call on so-and-so, you know, um, yeah, that's yeah. another male, but kind of like, but let's not ask a woman um, mm-hmm. what her thoughts are, even though she might've been leading or set up a whole organization or, you know, has all of this credibility but people aren't deferring to women. And so I think for me, um, I'm just very invested in the liberation of black people. And yes, it can get tiring, but I also feel like it is my, um, like a calling in my life and a part of my life's work. And so I have a grace for it that maybe some don't. Mm -hmm. And, um, that's just because it's just God given and therefore there's an endurance for it. But I also have had to learn how to just, shut it off or turn my phone off quite literally um and just take a mental and personal break so I can be fresh to have these conversations and I also don't conjure up words like if I'm writing something or I'm saying something about race or I'm making a post about it it's because I have the words in the moment to talk to it and to speak to it but if I don't I'm not going to say anything and I think that that's kept me real and authentic to just who I am and what I'm thinking about in that moment and what I feel needs to be said into the world. And, um, it just doesn't feel forced that way for me. Yeah. Mm. Gosh, I love that you just, what you just said about calling out, um, the importance of black women and their voices. We, um, talked about it last week, but I do some work with the divine feminine. And the reason why I like it so much is because there's this this uh, picture, both in scripture, but also we just see it in the world about the feminine presence around things really does represent and embody exactly what you're talking about. Sort of this reconciliation, this healing, this taking care of. Um, and have you seen that to be true? Because it feels exactly what you're saying. When a woman is leading, um, it does feel this very sort of like um, come around and um, we're going to walk through this together. It's a, it's a very different way towards reconciliation and rebuilding than um, maybe more of, of a masculine sense of sort of a checklist. Right. Yeah. I think that there's a lot of power in the leadership of women and we have 
um, we just have a way. We have a way of communicating <laughs> and saying things and leading that in some ways I think can be more inviting. But not only that, we're just really brilliant and we can multitask and we have so <laughs> yeah. many we have so many ways of how um, we can approach situations. And so I think that is something that is so special and it's not that you don't want to work with men or that men don't have anything to offer it's not that the world knows how they feel about men right like mm-hmm. um but it is saying that it's easier to know that a man is going to get credit for work that he's done um even if behind the scenes it's a woman that made it happen than for a woman to get credit for something that she's done and i mm-hmm. think especially in this work we have to ask ourselves why or if we're thinking of hey i want somebody to talk about race or i want to you know you know have somebody come speak why is it oftentimes that the man is the first person that somebody thinks about mm. why isn't it that women aren't thought of too that are doing the same work and also might be even more qualified to speak mm. into it yeah mm. gosh well i'm so thankful you've taken the time to be with us and point people where they can find you and your work and then also be the bridge so you can find me at faithbrooks.com. Two um, T's, and yeah. Two T's. Okay. Two T's in my name. Um, my parents just wanted me to be u- unique. There's no fancy story behind it. Um, <laughs> but I think I'm the only faith with two T's in the world. So I think it's actually kind of cool. I liked it when I was little. I love um, it. And now it's just, it's great. My mom, I was like, she she had a mission behind it and um, it worked. That's so, awesome. um, and then the social media, faith with two T's B at gmail.com. And I'm on all platforms there and you can, um, learn more about be the bridge at be the bridge.com or be a bridge builder on social media. Awesome. Thank you so much. Faith, Tim and Mike, do you guys have anything else you wanted to say? Nope. That was so good. Thank mm-hmm. you. Yeah. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yes, Faith, you're the best. Seriously, really appreciate you and all your work. And I'm really grateful for your friendship, too. Thank you. Thank you for taking the time. Yeah, absolutely. It was so nice to meet you all. And thanks for having me. You too. Great to meet you, Faith. Bye. Bye.